nothing would have stopped us. Nothing did stop us, did it? They just kept moving forward. Ian's death didn't stop us, Martin's death didn't stop us, getting all the equipment stolen didn't stop us. Through tragedy after tragedy and a complete reinvention. There was nothing to go back to, there was no plan B. To emerge with music adored the world over to this day. Even when you hear them on the radio now, they've aged well, you know what I mean? Their sound has endured. They've never really stopped to take a breath. They're uncompromising. Timeless. They push the envelope. Until now. Welcome to Transmissions, the definitive story of New Order and Joy Division. You were happy to not be sucked into that being a normal group. Joy Division held this mythology. There is Manchester band and they look like the coolest boys on the block. Based on new exclusive interviews with Bernard Sumner, Stephen Morris, Gillian Gilbert and Peter Hook. This podcast captures those vivid moments that tell this tale like never before. We did it. We did everything how we wanted it to sound. Being one band with such a distinct identity is pretty bloody lucky, but then to get into two bands was amazing. And it's not just through their words that we get to relive this monumental chapter of music history. We'll hear from Bono, Damon Albarn, Liam Gallagher, Karen O, members of Radiohead and many more. I don't think music fully understands how great all of them were. It was a bit like being a surfer who's just caught a wave. You're like, whoa, whoa, this is fun. This is a story about friends. A story about music. About Manchester. About the people you meet who change your life. About the nights out that do the same. It's about people, places and songs that have become legendary. It's the story of studios, record labels, nightclubs and dancing. It's also about being your own worst enemy, being stubborn, wanting more. It's about life and death. But like many good stories, it starts simply. At a time before mobile phones, home computers and social media, there's a scribbled note tacked to the wall of a Manchester record shop which reads Band Seeks Singer We put an advert up in a Virgin record store just off Piccadilly in central Manchester This is Bernard Sumner then a 20 year old aspiring musician I was the only one who had a phone although I should say it was my mother's phone so we put my phone number in it I promptly started getting crank calls at home People thinking it was really funny and to pick the phone up and someone would start screaming with laughter down the phone and then throw it down. So it was a bit annoying for a bit. And then we got a few, a couple of cranky singers. One was a total hippie. I'd never really met a hippie before. I was from Salford. He didn't get hippies in Salford. And I went over to Disbury where he did get hippies. And me and one of the roadies went to interview this guy. And he, he sat us on the floor on, on cushions, lit some joysticks. He then uh, produced a book of his poetry and a, a, a balalaika and started playing with us like a metre away, playing his balalaika and singing his poetry which was all about flowers and butterflies we, we just we try to keep a straight face but so there was a couple of events like that and then one night the phone call rang and I went in the bedroom and said yeah 
uh, it's about the singer that you want, you know. He said, I said, oh, right, yeah, what kind of music into? I thought, I better check this one first. <laughs> it's not, like, some hippie stuff. He was into the music we were into. He said, I've got gigs, I've seen you at gigs. And then I said, oh, what's your name? And he went, Ian. Full name, Ian Kevin Curtis. Like many 20-year-olds at the time, Ian was captivated by the movement sweeping the nation back in 1976. Punk rock. I met Ian at the Electric Circus. I can't remember which concert it was. It might have been the Sex Pistols' third gig. This is Peter Hook, childhood friend of Bernard Sumner and early punk obsessive. He was easy to spot. He had a donkey jacket with hate on the back in orange paint. And when he turned round, if someone had shown you the front of him first and said, what do you think this guy's got written on his back? You would have gone, pussycats, kittens? Not hate in fluorescent capital letters. He was unique and he stuck out, <laughs> shall we say. I went to his house, which was in Stratford, near Ayers Road in Stratford, and he was, I think, there were, him and Debbie were living with Ian's mother or grandmother at that time. They didn't... They didn't have their own place then. Or they just moved in there temporarily. And Ian showed me his PA and he said, hey, have you heard this This, this new Iggy Pop album's just come out this week? And he played China Girl. I'd never heard Iggy Pop before. And he played China Girl off the album. And I went, this is great. This is really, really great. And fell in love with it straight away. And I thought, this is the guy. This is the guy. So he came to rehearsals and we got on really well, yeah. Then we went through about five drummers until we got Steve. Steve was definitely the best. Yeah, drummer wanted and, uh, yeah. Enter 21-year-old drummer Stephen Morris. I went along and uh, did what I usually did, which was just make a racket. Somehow our racket coincided. We had mutually compatible racket-making capabilities. Plus I had a car, which meant I could take Ian home. Stephen, Bernard, Peter, Ian. Joy Division was born. Inspired by a song on David Bowie's 1977 album, Law, the four initially agreed on the name Warsaw. First, the band needed somewhere to practice. The 1970s was a period of transition for Manchester. The heavy industry that defined the area for generations had been in steep decline since the 60s and the city was undergoing a huge redevelopment. So there was no shortage of factory buildings to make a noise in. Bernard Sumner. I can't remember exactly where it was, but I can guarantee one thing, that our rehearsal space would have been awful. Either rat-infested or full of rubbish. Certainly no heating of any kind whatsoever, apart from a the Joy Division electric fire that we all used to fight to sit on on top of. It wasn't really a fire, it was an electric heater and you used to part your butt on it and try and keep it warm. Yeah, big cold 
drafty rehearsal space, but looks great in photographs when you look back at the photographs. And I remember once we tried sweeping all the rubbish on the floor to one end of the rehearsal room. I mean, this place was probably about 60, 70 foot long. So we swept it all to one end and set fire to it, trying to keep warm. <laughs> Stephen Morris can remember the struggle it was just to tune the instruments. Sat behind my drum kit, which I've just set, set up because he's take it home every night. And two amps, and they're just bing bong trying to get a guitar in tune before guitar tunes were invented. Because it was only Bernard who could tune guitars. So if Bernard didn't turn up, we were knackered. We could make music, but it would sound less like music. So we had to wait for Bernard. He could, well, he tuned Bucky's bass and his guitar. And we'd finish off the second drink, tin of Tizer, and play some songs. What exactly was the motivation for starting a band? At the time, Ian was working as a civil servant, while Bernard had a job as a runner at an advertising agency. We were all in pretty dull jobs. What am I doing here type jobs. So to do something, certainly, you know, at that stage, to do something that was potentially exciting and involved having fun, for a living was captivating, yeah. It was great and it was creative as well, you know. It wasn't just about fun, it was it was nice to work together and then through jamming or whatever, we would then end up with a song, be pretty proud of it. Then you take the song on the road and you'd uh, do a few little gigs and see how people reacted to it and then maybe modify the song a little bit, sped the tempo up or alter the arrangement slightly. So creative experience was very important. For Peter, the band wasn't just a creative outlet, but an expression of the prevailing punk ethos. We were all desperate, we were all misfits, we were all looking for something. You know, we'd found that umbrella that maybe the confusion of being a kid, not knowing what you wanted to do for the rest of your life, wanted to emulate your heroes. That was the umbrella you hid under, and punk was that umbrella that we hid under. So those values of, you know, being true to yourself, telling everyone to fuck off, never taking no for an answer, being unique, being awkward, being anarchic. But sometimes, anarchy had to give way to common sense. We found there was another band with a similar name in London called Warsaw Pact, and since Everybody knows that to get anywhere in show business, you've got to be able to play London. It was impeding our progress in show business. In fact, a lady told us, she said, you'll never get a gig in London with a name like the Warsaw Pact. Who incidentally did record an album in 24 hours and it was called Needle Time and it was plugged on the old grey whistle test. So we tended to agree with her and decided to change our name to, um, well, yeah, well, there was a lot of other names, but we ended up on Joy Division. Where did you get the name Joy Division from? You just suggested to 
That's not my hymn. <laughs> no, no, I mean, who suggested it? What you're hearing now is one of the earliest known audio interviews of the band. Assembled around a restaurant table and interviewed by a young American journalist, the four struggle to articulate why they call themselves Joy Division. I mean, a lot of things. Yeah. A lot of people used to say it sounded like a Salvation Army. <laughs> and other people have said, you know, other things. So. Yeah. Because you, you get. Um, you get this kind of wartime image, I do anyway, you get wartime images from the songs. Do, do you ever think of things like that? This sort of Second World War image? I don't know, this sort of vague no, no, prison, camp, prison camp type. Inspiration for the name came from a novella both Ian and Bernard were reading at the time called House of Dolls. Written in 1953 by an Auschwitz survivor, the book made reference to joy divisions, which were allegedly groups of Jewish women in concentration camps who'd been forced into sexual slavery for Nazi soldiers. Short excerpts from the novella even appear in this early song, No Love Lost. So long, So, with a dark name to complement their dark sound, the band were ready to pick a leader. You know, we were vying for position, we were vying for name, and we were vying for style. With his frenetic stage presence and talent for songwriting, Ian quickly emerged as the group's frontman. Our dream became an all-consuming passion and nothing was going to stop you. And even if it stopped you, Ian Curtis was not going to allow it to stop you because he was going to grab you and drag you along whether you liked it or not. I mean, Ian didn't actually play any instrumentation, not really, but he, was, he had a good ear. We were making music, he was good at spotting riffs. That's a good riff, let's keep that, that's a good riff. And, I, and then I would pick all the riffs and arrange them, do the arrangement on it. And then we'd end up with a basic arrangement that he'd take back and work the lyrics on. But he was great at spotting riffs because when you're playing yourself, you're absorbed in the instrument. You, you, your ear is coming from the instrument rather from the outside, so it was great to have someone like that. You have control over a lot then if you write the lyrics. Back around the same restaurant table, and we can hear the singer explaining the songwriting process. I get a vocal line. Not always. Yeah. The way I've been doing lately. The way you're working What do you mean? What do you mean you get a vocal line? Well, the way melody, you know, vocal melody, and uh, some of the lyrics that I'd have, 
to sing at the time when we did the song. I mean, key. Others are me now. What, you mean you make them up as you sing? Or? Yeah. When I, what I do is usually um, I get the vocal melody. There's usually some of the some of the words that I've sung at the time. I do key on the right more to go with it to fit yeah. the mood of the song, Very to cute. fit the mood of By now, a buzz around the band had already started to grow. Not just a buzz, but also a mystique. An early magazine photo shoot captures the band traipsing through the snow-covered streets of a desolate and dilapidated Manchester. Another, now iconic image, shows a stony-faced Ian Curtis in an East German-style raincoat smoking a cigarette. impression of Ian from some of the photo sessions that were done, you know, the tortured artists from those photographs, but it wasn't like that really. He was a good laugh. He was a really good laugh. A bit unpredictable. He'd say one thing and do another, which was a bit annoying at times. He could be a bit volatile, which is fair enough, you know. We were in a hotel once, I can't remember what, Derby or somewhere like that. He used the phone in the hotel and we weren't used to staying in the hotels and they charge you a fortune and he called home and they, they charged him like £10 for being on for like two minutes. And he, he got in a real fit about it and was fuming and, and he was like, well, you shouldn't have called home, should you, you stupid bastard? And <laughs> she was full and they had a massive argument about it. We believe that everything should be radical, the music we've made should be radical and pushed to the edge, which I think is a pretty good philosophy. It's easy to do that when you're young, that's how you feel, you know. The type of person you are doesn't necessarily reflect the kind of music you make because it was kind of music was a product of all four of us, really. It was just something that happened when we all got in a room together and if anyone had been different it wouldn't, wouldn't have sounded like, like it did. The lineup was complete. The name was sorted. The songs were falling into place. But when was that moment they knew they had something special? It was a gradual realisation that we had something that people liked when we played live. We always got um, not just a good response but uh, an over-the-top response. We had something really special and uh, I'm not being begetted there, we did. The first time I realised we had something special musically was we were uh, down to do a gig called Stuff the Superstars in the Mayflower, which was a right dump in Bellevue in Manchester. God, I think we were fourth on the bill, we were doing it as a favour actually. And we'd just written Transmission and we learnt it and played it and finished it off and we were very happy with it and we were desperate to play it. At the sound check, I remember there was about 12 bands on, so there was a lot of people. There was about 60, 80 people in the hall and Ian said, come on, come on, let's, let's sound check transmission, we'll play it later, you know, first time. And we sound checked it. And literally, as I was watching the room, everybody stopped and turned round and started to watch us, you know, they stopped talking. While we played for the first time ever in public, Transmission.
And it was then that I got that massive chill up my spine and thought, oh my God, we might actually have something big here. Exciting being able to do something productively creative that was in what felt right for you, not like what you've been maybe taught music at school where you were you were taught something like Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, but anyone from a working class background in Salford could not relate to whatsoever and we all thought was criminally uncool. So we wanted to do something that was cool. And that wasn't cool. The stuff they were teaching at school wasn't cool. It seemed really, really intense. And everything that you were doing was the first time. So it was really exciting. You know, there was no complacency, there was no boredom. It, it was, this was, wow. You know, it was like climbing a magical ladder. And every step was really exciting. It had begun. The next move was to capture on tape the amazing music they were creating on stage. If that was even possible. Coming up in episode two, we enter the world of unknown pleasures. Let's make a record now that in 30 odd years time, people will look back on it and, you know, say it's a masterpiece. I mean, we were making an album, yeah. But we were just recording all the songs that we got at that point. This is the room, the start of it all. We just all lived on our own island. It was four separate people doing their own thing, really. It sounds very strange. That's because it is very strange. <laughs> and we'll introduce you to the Maverick studio engineer and producer who helped carve out the band's now signature sound. Martin was a difficult character, but he gave us the gift of longevity. I've been waiting for a guy to come and take me by the hand. Plus, we'll hear how the album inspired some of the most successful names in music. Unknown territory, that's what it felt like to me. As well as being, I suppose, quite dark music, it has a strange magic to it as well. It's just there's nothing like it. No one else sounds like Joy Division. They created their own sound. I'm Maxine Peake, and this has been part one of Transmissions the definitive story of Joy Division and New Order. The series producer is Craig Templeton-Smith. This has been a Cup and Nuzzle production. I got the spirit.